All right, turn with me to Acts, Acts 5, this morning. While you're turning there, I just want to say that it's good to be back. Uh, July was just crazy for us, and we were gone a lot, and I hope not to go anywhere for a while. Uh, But last week, I had the chance to go and preach in Montrose at the Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church in Montrose, and... Um, it's really a good opportunity, I think, because it's a chance for little sister to come say hello to big sister. And I had the chance before I preached to encourage them and even charge them to pray for us here in Newcastle. Um, and that was received warmly and, and that not to estimate, underestimate the power of prayer as we are laboring here, even as they're laboring there. And so it's really a, a good a time of, of mutual fellowship and, um, and encouragement to me and exciting to, to let them know and keep us in the forefronts of their minds. Um, and we should do the same with those of us who are over here on the western slope. Re- remember that we're not alone, that we're not an isolated congregation. Um, so uh, that was a blessed time, but I am really grateful to be back. And uh, this morning, as I said, we'll be in Acts 5, continuing through Acts. And uh, let's pray as we go to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we ask, as as always, that you would attend your Word by your Spirit. As uh, us humans cannot understand it with our blind eyes without them being opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we do ask as we come to this text this morning that we would understand it and apply it to our lives and that we would be ones who live in the victory of Jesus Christ over his uh, opponents. Um, And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Acts 5, 12 through 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were being added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach, Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We have found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. 
Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudias rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then after, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. I did agonize over how, if I should break that story up, but it's one story, one powerful story. So we may not be able to be as granular in detail this time as we might like. So feel free to ask me questions if I, I may be able to answer them afterward. But um, So I wanted to begin by asking you this question is, do you expect to be victorious? Do you plan on living a victorious life? Now, before some of you leave and go and break into my office and find the Joel Osteen books on the shelf and put up the stake for my heresy trial, I want to say to you that Jesus does expect us to be victorious. He expects us to live victorious lives, not in the way that Mr. Osteen does, 
But didn't Jesus say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? And didn't he say in Revelation that the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will not never blot out his name from the book of life? Jesus expects us to be victorious because he will be victorious. Isn't that the point of the book of Revelation? The triumph of the Lamb. So our trouble is our understanding of victory. Our understanding of success. It's very often unbiblical. For example, how, how many of us, if our child grew up and moved far out into the wilderness, became a wild-eyed preacher, ultimately ended up imprisoned and beheaded by the king, would we say, there's a successful child. What a success. And yet God promised Zechariah that his son would be great before the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So how do we define success? How do we define greatness? How do we define success or victory? Likewise, would we say... We're trying to preach about Jesus and fulfill our calling to bring his name to the ends of the earth. We just keep getting arrested and threatened and beaten by the leaders. What a success. Victory. This story, though, I think is about Jesus crushing his opponents in Jerusalem in the beginning of the Great Commission in Jerusalem. Every time here that the church advances, the temple authorities rise up to try to put an end to it. And every time they rise up, Christ the King slams them back down to the ground. Though it doesn't always look the way we would expect. This text helps us to redefine victory and success in two ways. First, we should start to see that victory is not so much about personal well-being as it is about the kingdom. And second, we start to see that the kingdom success is not really about uh, cultural or personal or political transformation as much as it is about the preaching of the gospel. For the church, for the kingdom of God, faithfulness and victory and success are defined by preaching the gospel. So I'm seeing five ways in this text that Christ's kingdom advances and each time crushes the opponent. Uh, We make a mistake when we assume, well, let me back up. The first one of these five ways is the affirmation of the apostles. The affirmation of the apostles. So we do make a mistake when we assume that signs and wonders were kind of commonplace because we see them throughout the Bible, we think, Well, they must have always happened throughout history. We read the Bible and we assume this is how God's work. If his hand is in it, then signs and wonders will be in it as well. But we actually see, if we look at kind of the time between all of these magnificent times of signs and wonders, there's great gaps between those seasons. But when God does work through signs and wonders, it's always to attest both to the messenger 
and to their message. Verses 12 through 16 are testimony to the power of God in attesting to the apostles and to their message. When we read in verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Um, We're not supposed to think, oh, we're supposed to do signs and wonders. That's not that's not the point there. The point is we're, we're supposed to think, oh, these men, these apostles are like Moses, like Elijah, like Elisha. They're being used with such power that people are coming and laying the sick in the streets, hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on them. For some reason, I think of that scene in the, the, the Disney Peter Pan where the beginning Peter Pan loses his shadow and he tries to capture it and then uh, Wendy Wendy ties his shadow back to his shoes uh, and and I read that in ancient times the shadow was viewed as part of the the person so if if the shadow was to land on the person that's equivalent to Peter touching the person it's very interesting but they were being used to such power that, that they were bringing the sick to lay in hopes that the shadow would fall on them and Luke says in verse 13 that none of the rest dared to join them in the portico, which is a difficult phrase to interpret. There's different opinions, but I believe it's saying none of the rest of the believers joined the apostles. It was just the apostles in Solomon's portico at the temple. And and what this shows is that the apostles were kind of pushing the boundaries and being given an extra measure of boldness. The temple, the, the, the temple rulers were not um, Homer Simpson-esque buffoons. They were brilliant. They were revered men. They had a great deal of authority. And the apostles are kind of going to Smog's lair here. They're, they're going in deep. And it was working in 13b. It says the, the people held them in high esteem. In 14 it says more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And all of this is an answer to prayer. The prayer of the church, if you flip back to 4, uh, 4.29-30, They pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant that your servants continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So all of this is an answer to prayer. So these first few verses of this story, the success of the kingdom here is seen in Jesus attesting to his apostles. These are his witnesses. He's establishing them. There's almost a changing of the guard here from the temple rulers to the apostles. And this is foundational. Sometimes we take it for granted that that Jesus established his apostles. But we should remember that our faith, even in 2021 here in Newcastle, is an apostolic faith. That is, if we are the true church, if we're the orthodox church, if we are the victorious church, it's because we are an apostolic church. We're holding to and proclaiming and contending for the apostolic doctrine. So we see victory is in the spread of the gospel. Victory is in the spread of the apostolic gospel, the gospel. 
So the first victory of the Lord over the opposition here in this passage is the apostolic affirmation. Second is intervention for proclamation's sake. Intervention for proclamation. Um, seeing the, the growing success of the kingdom grates on the nerves of the opposition. It says in 17, But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So the Sadducees are, are horrified because two very bad things could happen. Either they could lose their own status as leaders, their own reputation, or the Romans could kind of catch wind of this new movement, and that would be problematic for the nation of Israel as a whole. The Sadducees are always trying to protect their own authority and always trying to protect that relationship with Rome. But they believe themselves to be the rightful authorities. They govern and instruct the people. The the apostles to them are interlopers. And they're, they're filled with jealousy, filled with rage at them. So they arrest them, cast them into prison a second time, and they're going to try them for their crimes. So does that make us nervous? Does that make Jesus nervous? Like, what is King Jesus going to do? They put him in prison. I think Jesus turns to kind of a quiet, and I think rather humorous strategy is the midnight angelic prison break. And what's the commission that the angel gives to them upon freeing them? Does he say, go and picket the injustice and inequality of the Sadducees on the temple steps? Or does he say, God is with you. Go and seize the temple mount. You are the new and rightful leaders of the people of Yahweh. He says in verse 20, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's the commission. Go and speak the words of life. Again, victory is the spread of the gospel. In this case of the unbound gospel. For Jesus, the spread of the, the kingdom is, is not in seizing control of worldly institutions. That, oh, 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 if we could just get a Christian in the White House. What a strategic win for Christianity that would be. I mean, I'd be fine. I'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> but didn't Jesus say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The victorious spread of the kingdom of Christ is found in people hearing the words of life and being transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son. The kingdom consists of spiritually dead people who have come to spiritual life. People who now live as citizens of a heavenly homeland. And there is one institution on earth which is no earthly institution at all. It is a heavenly embassy, and that is the church. So victory is the spread of the unbound gospel, of the unbound words of life. The first victory of the Lord over the opposition was apostolic affirmation. The second is intervention for proclamation of the gospel. And third is the humiliation of Christ's enemies. 
to these men who oppose Jesus, these, these apostles are like those trick birthday cake candles. They blow them out. They think they got them stuffed out. They turn around and they look back and there they are again, preaching in the temple. They can't get rid of them. Here Jesus is making the chief priests and the Sadducees, the most intelligent and powerful men in the land, look like fools. We read from 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came to and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. So when they do actually bring these men to the authorities, their authority is kind of chopped at the knees. They're terrified that the people are going to stone them, so they have to bring them gently. They probably would have liked to bring them by a rope on their neck (laughs) to the trial. But they couldn't. And they're more and more embarrassed. And actually, you kind of get the sense that these apostles could have kind of refused to go with them, and they wouldn't have had any recourse. They couldn't have done anything about it. By nothing more than the simple, persistent, bold preaching and teaching of the gospel, these humble, sinful, weak fishermen, Jesus is making a mockery out of the most powerful, brilliant men in Israel. This truth is reflected in the outcome of the great spiritual battle, the resounding victory completed at the cross. We find in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is shaming his enemies. He's humiliating his enemies. The devil and his forces were made to be fools by the most humble, humiliating instrument of human torture, the cross. And by hanging bloody and bruised, by being exposed and mocked, by becoming the object of the Father's scorn and wrath, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. He defeated once and for all the sin and and death. And we with him now wag our heads and say to the devil's most potent and frightening weapon, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So victory is seen in the humble spread of the glorious gospel. So the first victory of the Lord in this passage over the opposition is the apostolic affirmation. Second is intervention for proclamation. And third is the humiliation of Christ's enemies. And now fourth is a supply of boldness. Supply of boldness. 
Uh, the temple rulers are kind of upset about two things we see in this passage. One is the direct challenge to their authority and their reputation. It says, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, let, let, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The apostles reply, it's kind of funny to me, it's basically like, yep, (laughs) you said it right. We couldn't have said it better ourselves. And this is quite a change compared to the kind of quivering of frightened apostles toward the end of the Gospels. There's a supply of boldness. And this is one of the most powerful displays of Spirit-supplied boldness in the whole Bible. In 29 through 32, but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. You're seeking to bring this man's blood upon us. Yes, you killed by hanging him on a tree. It says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. In other words, not you. So they're looking these men right in the eye and they're saying, you murdered your Messiah. But the God of our fathers raised him up, raised him to be leader and savior of his people. How can we listen to you when our orders come from Him? We have to listen to God rather than man. In other words, we are on God's side and you're not. We preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. You do not. We serve Yahweh's Messiah. You do not. This is a supernatural kind of boldness. The Holy Spirit gives us freedom from the fear of men when He gives us the gift of the holy fear of the Lord. Without Him, we can never say to anyone, we must obey God rather than man. It's interesting here, the apostles, they never stop preaching the gospel. Even in calling out the sins of the temple leaders, they're still preaching the gospel to them. I find that incredibly instructive for us because often I think that the gospel for myself, the gospel is in contrast with judgment. But in truth here, the gospel is judgment to some and life to others. To some an aroma of life to life, to others aroma of death to death. So we always preach in hopes of repentance. We preach hoping that the people will smell the stench of death and notice that it's their own rotting flesh. And they'll turn and and find the sweet perfume of the gospel. But that isn't for us to decide. It's ultimately up to Christ to decide. We just proclaim. We proclaim the gospel. A gospel that is judgment to some and life to others. So again, victory is the spirit-emboldened spread of the gospel. Our fifth and final victory of the Lord over the opposition here is joy and suffering. Joy and suffering. I sometimes pray 
that God would make my kids strong warriors for the Lord. And sometimes I wonder whether I really know what I'm asking. I often wonder, what will the next 80 or 90 years hold for them? For, for Christians. But I'm comforted by passages like these ones. Passages that show the joy of cross-carrying. Passages that show the value of suffering with Christ. Passages that remind us that we are just aliens, strangers in this world. I'm comforted by passages like Roman or Revelation 6, 9 through 11, where it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. It's hard to grasp, but it's one of this world's greatest privileges to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. It's a privilege whose Reward will go with us into glory. And that's what we see at the end of the story in verse 41. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Victory. (laughs) Worthy to suffer. And the revered teacher, Gamaliel, here manages to kind of calm the Sadducees down a little bit. He says, look, there's been other revolutionaries. They died and their followings went away with them. But it's ironic because in their minds, the leader of this revolution has died. And yet the movement carries on. Also, as R.C. Sproul points out, it's not airtight logic on his part because there are false movements such as Islam that continue and continue despite the death of their leader. The irony continues when Gamaliel says, you may even find yourself to be fighting against God. And indeed they are fighting against God. But they do listen to Gamaliel and They do not kill the apostles, but they do beat them. They warn them harshly, do not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. I find it personally hard to imagine experiencing this situation. I know it's happened all over the world and all down through history, but we experience such freedom that it's hard to imagine personally being physically attacked, physically beat, and threatened not to preach in the name of Jesus. Craig Keener says that such beatings were intended to inflict public humiliation as well as pain. If the beating resembled later rabbinic practice, the victim would be bound to a post or laid on the ground, then flogged with a calf leather strip 26 times on the back and 13 on the chest. Uh, In other words, 39. They were allowed 40 by the Levitical law. Just to be safe, let's go with 39 in case we miss one where we're... (laughs) 
The temple rulers remind me here of the childhood bully, the, the big brute who lashes out in an attempt to look confident and in control, but deep down he's a scared, insecure little boy. Now, how effective are their threats? Jesus at, at this point is saying, enough, I, I give up, uncle. You've gone far enough. That's not what we see at all. In verse 41 and 42, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So victory for the kingdom for Jesus is the joyous spread of the despised gospel. Are you getting the point here of this message? That victory is in the spread of the gospel. We have all these other rivals in our minds for what victory looks like. But in the kingdom, victory looks like the spread of the gospel. So I want us to apply this message corporately as a church as well as individually. Do we expect to live victoriously? Or another way to ask it is, do we expect Jesus to triumph? Victory doesn't always look like we expect. It can look like being beat with a calf leather strip. We know well the deaths of these men, these apostles, who so boldly stood before the chief priests, and, and those deaths read like a laundry list of mankind's most brutal tortures. Victory, right? By these sufferings, they did not lose their lives, but they gained them. And they're added to the great hall of those who were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, men of whom the world was not worthy. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.